0: Welcome to the DOS Champions Podcast. I'm Alex Weinstein. It is the 9th of January. It's been some time since we've done this. I'm joined by co-owner Ryan Tooney. Ryan, what's new in your world?
1: Uh, A lot and nothing. Um, It's great to be back. Uh, It's been really, really cold around here recently. Uh, So that's a thing, I guess. But uh, what's been happening with you? you know, why has it been so long since we've uh, been able to to do this?
0: Well, at first, the problem was the holidays, and we were both traveling out of state to go visit all of our family. And uh, so, what, was that sometime in early, de- mid-December that we started having that issue? And then um, on Christmas night, my wife's water broke about six weeks earlier than we expected. And um, my son was born on the 26th he is after 6 days in the NICU in good health eating a ton um he's a joy to be around uh, but that's what's been happening with me so um the content calendar took a
1: pause for a pretty significant life event yeah um you know congratulations to alex uh it's obviously a life-changing event and um i'm hopeful he can he can ball out for us uh He's gonna need Uncle. He's gonna need Uncle Ryan there to teach him a thing or
0: two. But yeah, I'm hopeful that this kid likes to ball. Maybe he yeah. doesn't. Maybe ballet is more of his thing.
1: No, I can teach him that uh, a little bit of water in the vodka bottle makes it look like it's at the same level it was before.
0: Oh, dude, yeah, I remember those techniques. Yeah, I, I won't go into them. But let's just say I had a, We've had a few good times. God, those were those were the fir- those were some firsts for us back in high school.
1: Um, yeah, speaking of firsts, um, I don't want to like I guess go right into the content, but there was a USMNT that uh, had a debut. That's a that's a first for him, Pepe.
0: Oh yeah, he did he did have a first, and um, we should we should jump into that. Um, let's talk about like the N's national team nines because it's been a pretty active it's definitely been an active week, but it's also been a kind of active last few months, even for them. Um, Let's talk about Ricardo Pepe first.
1: Yeah. uh, So as everyone knows, and it's kind of settled, done and dusted at this point, uh, Ricardo Pepe made his long anticipated transfer to the Bundesliga. It was not to a location, I guess that we initially anticipated or had been talked about much. He landed at Augsburg. There was a lot of uh, Wolfsburg talk, but that did not, that's not how it ended up. Uh, this is a huge transfer fee, uh, reported upward of $20 million. Um, Augsburg made quite the investment in them. They're struggling with relegation. So I imagine they hope he can come in and uh, help them avoid relegation and build toward the future. Um, I can speak for myself when I say I think in general this is going to be a really, really solid move for Pepe. He uh, is going to get a lot of opportunities. And he did get to play a little bit this weekend against Hoffenheim um 30 minutes looked like he he wanted to get on the end of crosses uh press the ball effectively a couple of times um other than that just kind of a I guess we'll see if it's an average showing or not but nothing nothing spectacular um alex what's your feel on this move in general and then i guess take us into some of the the things that are off the field related to it
0: yeah so in general i think it's a fantastic move for him um he at least when i watched him play he already looked like he was in better form than he had been for the men's national team as of late and for fc dallas late in the season he had kind of gone on a drive spell for fc dallas and the men's national team over the second half of the season and i saw him take the field and he was like very lively his he made little to no mistakes on the field he had one pass that was kind of an awkward pass that may have missed the mark but that was it. Um, He was pretty much bulletproof out there. And it seemed as if the team wanted to give him significant service. Um, And Pepe's just like, he's got the build and he's got the nose for goal to be a very effective goal scorer. And I think this is the exact position you want a player like Ricardo Pepe in. You want him on a team that's going to support him. You want him getting minutes. You want him to be fighting for something that's legitimately able to be attained, which is to not get relegated. Um, well, not totally getting your ass kicked every game, which is not the type of team Augsburg is they're not playing this beautiful football, but they're not getting pulverized like a norwich so I think it's a fantastic move for him, and he looked really good out there. I think he's going to be successful and this is going this has been a great move for his career the off the field issue the off the field factors in the deal I guess I would summarize it as simply as this to start if Ricardo Pepe were not an American player, and even the specific type of American player that he is, um, Latin American, I question if this deal would have gone through at the transfer rate that it did. So said differently, if Ricardo Pepe were a Japanese player or um, an Ethiopian player, I don't know if he would have gone for $20 million. $20 million is the value of Ricardo Pepe, but it isn't necessarily representative of the skill set that he brings here and now. Um, I'll start with that.
1: Yeah, I think uh, it's important to say that in what you're saying, it's not to diminish Ricardo Pepe's skill set. Obviously, um, Pepe was bought for to be played, to score goals, uh, to give value to the team. It's first and foremost a, a sport, and he uh, is is brought in there to perform in that capacity. Um some of the you know the just that the owner has affiliations with the MLS I think is is probably the the thing that a lot of people will look at and go oh there might be a little bit more to the financial side of this than initially meets the eye um and and the details of of all that are something I'm I'm not too familiar with I know the guy's name is David Blitzer that owns uh, this and then has some control over or maybe owns Real Salt Lake depending upon how it works with MLS exactly. I know the Real Salt Lake ownership hadn't been exactly clear in the recent past, so I'm, I'm not sure how that affiliation is exactly. I know there's some um, you know suspicion around. David Blitzer and, and kind of circumventing the 50 plus one rule. I don't know the, the details of that ag- exactly, how he you know went about that. Um, and, and to be quite frank, in terms of like Ricardo Pepe and his ability to perform and all of that, uh, I'm not sure that m- much of this matters in terms of the on-field performance. Um, I think David Blitzer probably sees a player that's capable of making him a bunch of money, which... You know, that's also important. And usually players that play really well, they they make money for themselves and for those associated with them. So
0: yeah, and you know, it's it's this might be a good point to make sure that our audience knows these are mutually exclusive topics, at least in the way that we're addressing them. Ricardo Pepe is a fantastic talent and more than likely coming out of this thing is only going to have to battle with one or two people to occupy the starting nine in the men's national team. He's He's probably our best prospect at the nine, and Augsburg is a great landing spot for him. There is a business side outside of this that has nothing to do, really, with Pepe's talents. Um, Like Ryan said, David Blitzer owns Real Salt Lake. It seems to me that with this giant transfer, he's doing the league a service by setting the precedent that transfers from the MLS can be of this value. Um, As far as the 50 plus one rule, Ryan, I don't know a ton about it. I'm not a subject matter expert, but... From what I understand, the 50 plus one rule is designed to keep um, to keep membership of the league and ownership of the league balanced. So teams aren't supposed to be able to usurp members of a said club, which keeps basically interests across a team somewhat spread across a community instead of resting in the hands of one individual. It's basically a play to stop any monopoly from existing in the Bundesliga. And there's been a few teams that have been able to circumvent it. Um Augsburg is one of the more recent ones. There's claims that Wolfsburg, Hoffenheim, and RB Leipzig are all teams that have found ways to circumvent the 50 plus one rule. But Brian, is that kind of what the 50 plus one rule is there to do?
1: Um, my understanding of it is just to keep the uh a decision making portion of the club's shares in the hands of members. And that's why it's fifty plus one, is because you know fifty-one percent. Um how the specifics of the people that are the teams that have circumvented it are um, you now in, in each one and, and the details I'm not as familiar with. I, I believe, though, that RV Leipzig has something where the a lot of the, um, the voting members are also employees of, of Red Bull. Um, and then I know the other clubs that you mentioned have large corporate uh, ownership. SAP and and, and
0: um, Volkswagen.
1: Yeah, and I imagine that there's some sort of um, them trying to circumvent that rule in order to exert additional control over the club. I don't know the detail of exactly how they're how they're doing that, but uh, yeah, I don't know if that if any of this is supposed to be like, oh, well, look at then the Pepe transfer is like not legitimate or something like that. Because I'm not sure that um, you know it's it's necessarily like that. It's just a uh, big money's at stake here, and um, it's almost a kind of, this is going to sound weird maybe, but like not a good thing, but a a sign of the state that U S soccer and U S soccer players are kind of getting to that, uh, you know, these type of things are, are swirling around in a state for, for people to, you know, get, they want to, they want to make more money. They want to have more control over it. It's big, it's big business. And Pepe's a big player in that big business. So, uh, Hopefully, we see him banging in goals against, uh, you know, Canada soon. And and that's what the result of this is for, you know, your average fan and all of us.
0: Yeah, one of the safe things to say about this move financially is that it is an absolute indication that uh, large investors consider uh, the U.S. market an emerging market, that U.S. soccer is supposed to be an emerging market in the soccer landscape, and it's a worthwhile investment that without doubt is a symbol of what's happened in this deal on the counter end of things, what I what I will say, and this is going to annoy some people, is that there's a difference between this type of deal and RB Salzburg dropping 15 to 20 million on him, or Borussia Dortmund dropping 15 to 20 million, or Ajax dropping 15 to 20 million. There's a difference between these two. The clubs that I just mentioned make sporting decisions that are consistent with a culture of winning and overachievement. This seemed to be more of a financial move than anything else. And that's it's not that there's anything wrong with it or that it's bad for Pepe or that Pepe is undeserving, but there is a difference between the two.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, I guess I, I'd like to close out the Pepe segment here just by bringing up, um, you know, he got to play against Chris Richards in his first game, which, which was really neat. There was a great photo that came out of it where they're both like jumping for a header. Um, I could see having that as a poster when I was a, when I was a kid, um, so really cool moments for the us men's national team in general and uh just kind of a sign of the that picture is kind of a sign of the times where um i, I many of you would have seen this i would guess on on social media but this is it's really like interesting to get to see um two young americans uh, participating and achieving at a level that when you know we were we were younger uh would really not be fathomable really at all. And yeah, this is, you know, it's, it's pretty special. Um, we should really enjoy the ride. I agree. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about Daryl DK. Cause talk about another ride. I mean, this guy has been, he hasn't really been up and down, but how we've talked about him in the last year may have been up and down. And uh, his, this transfer to West Brom is definitely another upswing. And I think we'll be talking about Daryl DK for the right reasons all spring.
0: Oh, 100%. Um, With a lot of the news um, going on with Pepe, it's been easy to forget Daryl D.K. He has, there hasn't been an environment where he hasn't produced since his college years. I mean, in college, he was an elite goal scorer at Orlando City in his first year. He scored goals, um, makes the transfer or the loan move to um, Barnsley, scores a shit ton of goals there, comes back to Orlando City. Picks up an injury as soon as he's on the field. He's averaging one of the highest goals goals per 90 in the league. And now he's going to West Brom, where I assume he's absolutely going to ball out again. Um, we are going to—we're going to we're gonna get on the—basically, there's going to be a DK train rolling up to the station.
1: Yeah. Um, last season, we talked a lot about DK, and that was before Dust Champions really got rolling at— the uh, pace that it's been rolling now. Um, I guess we had our little break here, but uh, yeah, DK has been, I think for Alex and I, a mainstay of conversation for a year plus. Uh, the way that he was able to fit in with Barnsley and play the, you know, be a, a very good asset in that root one football, really battle for everything. Um, he doesn't look, he didn't look out of place in the championship at all. And, and that was a really good thing that was obviously noticed by uh, the coach of Barnsley. Um, who's now the coach of West Brom, and he brings him on in. Uh, I think this is a dream transfer in some ways for DK. He's going to settle in very quickly. Uh, He didn't get an appearance against Brighton uh, over the weekend in the FA Cup, but you got to picture him featuring for QPR next weekend, or sorry, featuring against QPR next weekend in the league. Um, Yeah, I'm, I'm just anticipating uh, very impatiently the first time that he's, he scores a goal and uh, seeing a little bit of his, his dance moves come back. And I think all the West Brom fans are going to take a shine to him pretty quickly.
0: I agree. And one more thing that I'll say about DK, the thing that makes him different from any of the other nines that we'll talk about today, which are Pepe, DK, Sergeant and P folk. The thing that makes him different is he's physically, um, he's like a miss. He's a matchup nightmare. Um, in college, I think he clocked in at 225 pounds and he was one of the fastest players on the field. I forget what his 40 time was and exactly what the measurement of his speed was. But at 225 pounds to be one of the fastest people on the field is just it's a it's a matchup nightmare. No matter who you are or what league you're in, um, he could be going up against some of the best talent, like the some of those veteran Italian backline players in Serie A. And he would still be a problem for the Cialinis and the Banuccis of the world in a 50-50 ball um it's one of the things that I think is really unique about DK.
1: Yeah, I I agree that he has a special skill set that allows him to excel at uh, root one ball um and sometimes you need that. It's not our preferred method with the national team at least, but uh having a battering ram for when you need it late on to to get a goal in is is useful almost in in any league at a certain juncture. It's not it's not your uh, preferred method like I sh- I said. Uh, which I think makes DK a really interesting option within the the striker pool and, and gives him a, a unique niche that I hope burhalter doesn't, doesn't disregard, even though it doesn't necessarily make for the most of the pretty uh, ball or anything. Um, I think it's good to have that sort of tool in your toolkit. Um, yeah, I guess we'll round out this segment by talking about a couple of the other, uh, other guys in the nine pool, at least from our perspective. Um, I think we have two and a half more people to talk about. Uh, yeah, uh, what do you want to go with P folk next?
0: Yeah, I, I, we can talk about P folk next. Um, it's a pretty short and simple message on P folk. I've I've been anyone who follows us on Twitter knows that I've been um, advocating for P folks' candidacy as a starting nine, and a lot of what a lot of the response that I've heard is almost this. It's less of uh disconfirmation that he's the player and more of straw manning his achievements and straw manning his candidacy. Um, and basically turning P folk into a lesser version of what he actually was. So for example, I've highlighted that P folk hasn't received the same opportunity that other nines have received in the men's national team. And by the way, on the season, he's, he's on pace to literally double Pepe's production from FC Dallas, uh, so far with young boys. Um, but I've noted that like, hey, p Folk really hasn't gotten much of a chance for the men's national team. And I've heard from literally all, all sorts of people, big media players, uh, small guys, that oh, well, P-Folk has eight caps and Pepe only has seven caps for the men's national team. What do you mean he hasn't had the same chance? Well, p Folk has less than half the minutes of Ricardo Pepe, if you factor in all the minutes that they've played. He's been a substitute in every single game he's played, and he hasn't once played with a MMA midfield compared to a player like Pepe who's played with an MMA midfield three times. And it's not so much that P Folk is better than Peppy is what I'm saying, or that P Folk is better than DK or P Folk's are starting nine. It's that we have to use legitimate criteria to to confirm and disconfirm that players occupy certain positions in our roster. And when we point when we make the effort to go look at data or go look up statistics and neglect Things like minutes played, or neglect things with uh, like who he's played with on the field, and only factor in data points that would be consistent with our argument. We don't do ourselves any service as a fan base. So I'm going to consistently give P folk shouts until he either stops performing or until the fan base warms up to him.
1: Yeah, um, my take on P folk is just that he seems to be fairly productive in his um, club capacity he also is in more or less the prime of his, his career. I think he's 25 now. Uh, and is, I guess the most, I guess I'll say cultured of the the options we have. He's, he's been the professional for the longest and he has, um, played at a consistent level that the other players at the nine haven't, haven't played at. And the tight ty- he, he tends to be pretty, pretty good with his finishing as well. Um, and and knows how just knows how to play the striker position uh get getting open um his movements very good then you know the the other guys in the pool he just is a little bit more like like i said cultured uh, developed in his skill set and if you made me choose a guy that you put him in and i feel that he's got the best chance to convert a, a small number of chances that are coming his way i, I think i i'd put p folk up there um right now as the, as the striker pool sits, a couple other guys though, that we want to touch on briefly are, um, and we'll kind of do them, I guess almost in, in tandem in a way, but our Josh Sargent, and then briefly Jesse Zardes. Uh, Sargent has been super difficult, I think to get a read on currently because the team around him is awful. And the few opportunities that he's had, a couple of them at least have been botched in, um, spectacular circumstance which doesn't do uh you know his his resume or i would imagine his confidence many favors he's not going to get a ton of chances to redeem himself or build confidence in the current setup with norwich and it it just makes it like a really tough situation for him or one to properly assess what what he is or for him to develop so it's a it's really bad, uh, I think, um, in terms of his ability to actually get included in the national team um, as things currently sit. What What are you feeling with Sargent, Alex? I think
0: I think you nailed it. I'm going to use some of the data points that you brought into this pod. Um, they played a team today that's 39 places below Norwich. So if you took all the English teams and put them in one giant table, the team that they play today are 39 spots below where Norwich, Norwich currently rests. And as I watched the game, Sargent got an opportunity to play nine, but then was later moved to the right wing. I understood why Sargent is playing the right wing. And the reason why he's playing the right wing isn't because he can't do what the nine requires. It's because what's happening on the right wing is is so poor that you're better off playing Josh out of position than you are to use him as a substitute at the nine for Timo Pukki, who's not going to get any service if there isn't somebody like Josh playing the, playing on the right wing. Um, he has botched opportunities in, in you know, spectacular fashion, as you put it. But the opportunities that he's, been, that he's botched throughout the entire life cycle of the season, I can count on one hand. Uh, like, and it's because I've watched every single Norwich game. And so I understand that like, he's, he's had some pretty embarrassing errors on the field. But the fact that I can count them on one hand it actually speaks more to the, type of, to, to the volume of opportunities that he's had more than it does the mistakes that he's made. Um, they're in a really bad spot. You said this also, Ryan, so I'm going to continue to um, steal your words. If they get relegated, which they are going to get relegated, I highly doubt that they're going to get promoted in the foreseeable future. They're just not a good team.
1: Yeah, we were talking, uh, I guess it was probably shortly after the game today for Norwich versus uh, Charlton Athletic, and... The manner in which Norwich conducted themselves in that game is really, really poor. They they can't like exert sustained pressure upon an opponent, which, as you said, 39 places lower than them. Um, and yeah, they rotated because it's the FA Cup. And so, you know, it's not their full team. But when they do get relegated, you have to imagine the players that they're at risk of losing will be some of their better ones. Um, and that type of atrophy, once they get down into the championship may result in them not having the capacity to, uh, you know, consistently get scoring opportunities, even against teams of the quality of Charlton athletic, which it, it makes it difficult for you to picture them, um, putting together enough results to readily get promoted the next season, uh, You know, that's just some predictive stuff from what we observed today uh, when they were playing. But as far as Sargent and the Norwich setup as it currently stands, where they think they can be the most effective, one redeeming thing I guess I can say about him is that him being at right wing, he appears to be uh, competent enough at it that their coach um, has been deploying him instead of uh, Cantwell which is significant in that Cantwell was an established member of the team, kind of like a golden boy-ish figure two seasons ago when they were in the Premier League and a, a contributor for them last season. So for Sargent to get, you know, put in ahead of somebody like that at least shows how much they trust him and think that he can, he can help them be the best version of their shitty selves I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So there's that. We got that going for him, which is nice. But um yeah.
0: well there's been there's been four coaches since Josh entered top 5 leagues who have felt that Josh helps them become the best version of their shitty selves.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it sucks, but um I think when you compare him within the US men's national team setup and how he could fit in potentially, the best argument I could give him, and I don't think he's going to end up getting included because I don't think he's he's as good as, say, the top three strikers right now or as good as, say, the the top four wingers right now. But if you're comparing him against people like Ariola or Zardes, which I think have to be imagined as outsiders compared to our, our more elite players, I think he, he matches up favorably to both of those guys. I, I don't know that... And I actually think um Greg would disagree with me on this, but the most merited inclusion I could give Sargent right now in the U.S. men's national team setup is as a backup nine slash winger, because I think he's just like the best of the rest in that in that area.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um I, I think it's safe to argue, Pepe, DK, and Folk are all ahead of Sergeant yeah. in the packing order right now. Zardes and Ariola, Zardes of the nine, Ariola on the wing, are not.
1: Yeah, but you would never say like Sergeant deserves over Weah or Aronson or Reyna or No, Holistic, you know, no, you wouldn't. Which probably just leaves him on the outside. Um, and yeah, I guess to close this out, I'll just say Zardes as one of the contributing nines this team i i pray that he just doesn't get anywhere near the squad for important games um greg might do greg things and we might have to live with it again but uh yeah he's just nowhere near as good as any of the other guys we've been talking about
0: yeah i have a feeling greg is going to do greg things uh yeah. if, if past behaviors any indication of future behavior greg will do greg things um, but speaking of past behaviors and being an indication of future behaviors, why don't we talk about the USSF president election?
1: Hooray! That was a that was a great transition there, Alex. I I have my moments. Um,
0: I mean, are we at all surprised by the total lack of transparency? No. And um, it's it's just insane that this is a I, I could understand it if USSF was like a private business, you know, like a non-public business where they, you know, there's no f- fiduciary responsibility that they had to show their profits or show where money's going in and in and out. But the fact that they're a uh, regulatory body is just, it's astonishing.
1: Yeah. um, The presidential election last time had a lot of, had a lot of issues. You have to imagine that this one will have a lot of issues or that anybody that like cares and wants to do what we would consider good for the program is so despondent at this point that there's not any real opposition materializing, which I, I think might be kind of where we're at, which it's really sad. But uh, but yeah, so um, the one of the things that we're talking about here is that the um, committee has no plans to make public the nomination letters or the number received by any candidate on the final slate. So, um, you know, they're just officially being non-transparent, which you may ask why. Um, and I don't know what they would tell you. Probably some bullshit about wanting to protect you and having your best interest at heart as people in these positions are wont to do. Um, yeah, that coupled with the XUSF president Carlos, is it Cordero, is going to run for re-election. Um, you know, he had resigned in the wake of, uh, I think, the e- the equal pay um, arguments. Yep. And you know whether there's merit to if he should have resigned or not, to me is a little as- beside the point here. It's more that we have an institution that doesn't that purposely doesn't want to be transparent and somebody that resigned for what seemed like uh fairly bad reasons, feeling comfortable enough to run again, but nobody feels comfortable enough to say who thinks that's a good idea because they don't want to be transparent with their nomination letters. Th- this little circle right here. Um, yeah, it's really shitty. And it's actually to the point with me where uh, this organization is just like beyond repair and it just doesn't, there's not any legitimacy behind it. And um, I'm at a loss in terms of solutions because I I don't know how this should be run necessarily, but the USSF and, you know, it's affiliation with some and this like not being transparent and like ex people that are, resigning and then feeling comfortable running again. Like what is going on over there? Like, are we really like going to just tolerate this and, and, and not going to do anything about it? Is USSF useful any longer? Like should we as a fan base start some sort of movement toward like getting rid of USSF and finding a replacement organization that has the develop of, development of USS soccer at heart? In general, has a few more, um, you know, regulations put in point to to stop uh, conflict of interest being so rampant and and give more transparency. I don't know if it's so sad because it feels like a lot of the people that really were in a position to make a difference are, are basically exhausted by by all of this
0: yeah it's so funny that you you bring that up. I mean every time you bring up a new facet of this thing, my mind goes in a million different directions with all the topics that are tied to it, and the one that you brought up most recently, everyone seems exhausted. It's a combination of people are exhausted fighting this fight there's been There have been people that we've brought on this podcast who have been fighting this fight for ten fifteen years, maybe even longer in some cases and they're they're you know imagine putting your life's work into reporting. About U.S. soccer, you know, it's not a glorious job. It doesn't pay a ton. Uh, you're doing it because it's a labor of love situation, and and then constantly having to interface with USSF, this super corrupt organization. Imagine being in that situation for 15 to 20 years, making that your career. You would be exhausted. You'd be fed up, and you'd probably be somewhat bitter by the time it was all over. And part of the problem is. The people who know what USS is and have spoke up, USSF is and has have spoke up enough about it, are just growing tired of talking about it. Nothing is getting done. It's not a fun subject, and and for many of them, they're met with this criticism from especially younger fan bases of, take your tinfoil hat off. Off, you are full of it. What are you talking about? Show me, show me any evidence that your claims are true. Um, It's a little bit of Stockholm syndrome going on with that because there's just this overwhelming body of evidence to suggest that USSF is a corrupt institution with financial interests and no intention of upholding their regulatory responsibility. Um, So you've got this one facet of the audience base that's just tired of it. And then you've got another facet of the audience base that could actually do something about it with their sphere of influence, but they're still in bed with USSF or have been involved in transgressions that are that are so volatile that they're unwilling to take a position against ussf so those are two aspects of the fan base and then there's just the younger generation that doesn't really seem to care or understand how bad this is and understand that all the topical subjects that we cover today are really derived from the way that our organization operates and our association operates so you know what do we do um there's been a group of small media writers that have decided that they're going to get together and cover off on it or, or at least talk about it in their respective, uh, media outlets. And, um, I think the fan base just needs to be aware of what's going on. And at the end of the day, we've always gone back to what does the ideal fan look like? Well, one of the topics that we've talked about is spend your money wisely and realize that your, your checkbook is something that you can use to influence change. Um, That's all, that's all, I guess all I can really cover off on there, Ryan. It's, it's, it's so, it's so twisted that it's almost exhausting to talk about.
1: Yeah. um, The one thing I would add to what you said is just, you know, be informed. Uh, Don't really trust anybody in particular to tell you what the truth is. Go and figure shit out and try to, you know, understand why things are the way they are and why you think they should be the way you think they should be. Um, But Yeah. I guess we can round that out and uh, jump into some good old EPL. We have missed quite a few weeks of coverage here. Uh, so we'll we'll go through a few of the hot topic- topics, you know, just like yeah, we're at the mall.
0: Ha- yeah, some hot and, pockets.
1: <laughs> hot pockets. Man, I ran out the other day. But um, no, we'll go over some of the uh, hot topics and then we'll uh, talk about just kind of the general state of the league. The first thing that I would like to uh, to get into here is like the Pulisic conversations that seem to be uh, th- that seem to be always coming up, and this is like in a, in the lead up to the transfer window opening, um, and yeah, I just kind of wanted to sound off on the general state of like Pulisic at Chelsea and and all the conversations around him. So you know, there's a lot of conversation about him, like them wanting to get rid of him, him seeking a move, um, all of these things. Uh, and it, in the end, appears to be fairly ridiculous, uh, conversation. Uh, I I don't know how to say this exactly, but, um, he seems like he's a pretty important player to Chelsea based upon how often he's been playing recently. Yeah, he gets played out of position more often than not right now, but if anything, this highlights his versatility. And then also that he's very, very oriented toward the collective of the team. and. I have to imagine these are things that Tuchel values like implicitly based upon his, his style. Um, so politics in, in it good, whether or not he can solidify himself as like the first choice, once everything settles in here, moving into the spring is probably up to him being able to stay healthy more than, more than anything else. Uh, Cause his quality, it shows when he gets a run, um which I, I think there's you know unfair criticism of his of his quality throughout this recent period and that actually quietly he um has been one of their most consistent players and staying healthy so i i grabbed a few snips here just to kind of demonstrate what i'm looking at but um on the uh 11th of december he was on the bench the entire time in the Premier League against Leeds. From then on, in the Premier League, he has started and played the full 90, sometimes switching position in every game. And that's one, two, three, four, five games. Whether it be at center forward or right wing back, right mid, however you like to say it, um, or I think. What was it? Just recently, he got deployed in what would be considered as more natural position. Um, Yeah, he he's been playing a lot, and then interdispersed within these Premier League games, which Chelsea considers the most important games, and he's playing the full ninety in them. He's had a couple appearances in the uh, quarterfinals of the um, what is that? The EFL Cup and the semifinals of the EFL Cup, and then. Uh, a few minutes in the, uh, FA cup. So he basically is getting like full minutes in the most important games. And at the worst substitute appearances in the other games since the 16th of, uh, last month. So he's at least staying healthy and he's being fairly productive and seems to be very valued by the, by the coach and, and the Chelsea organization. Um, so yeah, that's that's my rant about Polisic and where he's at right now. Basically, playing all the time in all the important games is where Polisic is right now.
0: That was awesome, man. Um, yeah, I I've, I don't have anything that's more impactful than what you just said. I guess all I'll say is that based on what I know about Tuchel and his history with Polisic and the way that Polisic is playing on the field, or specifically how many positions he's playing, it's crazy to me to think that people would consider Polisic a disposable resource, somebody that you could just get rid of or, or transfer that Chelsea is seeking to get rid of. Doesn't make any sense. And I've even heard rumors that oh Barcelona are interested in Polisic. He should go to Barcelona. And I'm just like, I cannot think of a worse landing spot for any player, let alone Polisic, than a team like that. Um so no, Ryan, I I think what you covered off on in his usage over the most important games is a, is a very strong data point and it's just purely objective. So I appreciate you bringing that up. I don't have anything else to add.
1: Yeah. The one thing I'll I'll just end with on Polisic is, and maybe I kind of already said this, but he's staying healthy thus far and that's, that's super important. So if he can avoid those soft tissue injuries and, and keep, keep balling out um, he's just going to get better and better and the production production will come. Um, I actually, I'll I'll give a prediction that by the time we're into the real business end of the Champions League with Pulisic, that he is, he's putting in minutes in super important games that they're winning, like in a, you know, like a quarterfinal of the Champions League or, or whatever. Um, So basically exactly what we
0: saw him do last year.
1: Yeah, these are long seasons, man, you know, and things ebb and flow. And if he can get himself into a really good spot right here then uh, he's going to have a very strong end of the season. And hopefully that coincides with some strong performances for the national team. So yeah, things are cooking with Pulisic right now, I would say.
0: Good take, Ryan. Um, Should we move to Man United drama?
1: Oh yes. Let us.
0: (laughs) um you brought this point up and so i keep i keep taking your words but maybe maybe i'll start with my re- my own research um a lot of people have at least i wouldn't say a lot of people but some of the community that we typically interact with have been highly critical of ralph and namely the appointment uh, appointment of chris armis um as it is chris armis right ryan i didn't butcher his name is that correct yeah, chris okay yeah chris armis Yeah, it's um, chris armis <laughs> I was like, oh my God, Josh Harmas. Um Then some people have been critical of him being appointed and I'm, sh- I'm shocked to see the criticism as almost as almost maybe Ralph had some sort of personal tie to Chris Harmas. Um They've been significantly better under Ralph and the eye test doesn't show it, but they under Ralph United have had five wins, three draws and one loss under Ole, seven wins, three draws, seven losses. So, I'm just like surprised to see the level of frustration from um, small pockets of the fan base. but um Ryan, what do you think is going on with some of the drama over at United?
1: Um, I think just in general, that this has to do with players who have gotten very comfortable under Ole. Um, and now they're they're being pushed, and there's there's change and, and new expectations. And people probably barking at them in training a little bit more than they're accustomed to. Um, And they're lashing out. And some of them have a bit of what a lot of people would consider oversized uh, power at the club, being that they have the ear of the board or some of the upper members of of the management. And and they'll go run their mouths or or go to the media and and complain. And really, it's it's petulance uh, from people that have not been very good for a number of years now and seemingly, you know, only bark about the coach when it's somebody that will try to get him to improve. It's a, it, maybe that's a little bit too stark no. and harsh of a take there, but uh, you know, they are professionals and you would imagine that they want to succeed and get the most out of it. But everyone gets comfortable and and people with big egos especially are going to probably find reasons to think that what they're doing is correct. Um and th- you know, I don't think very many people are are um you know, an exception to that type of thing. Uh, and I certainly don't think the footballers are, uh, but yeah, I think it's just, they, they miss, they miss ollie he let them, he let them be a little bit uh, less strict and all, all that kind of shit. Yeah,
0: ollie so, let them have ice cream for breakfast and stay up till two o'clock in the morning watching home alone. Yeah, um, and the the players like that. The Pogba's like that. The Maguire's like that. They appreciate not being held accountable. And if I recall correctly, this was one of the issues that Mourinho had with the team.
1: Yeah, it, it was. I mean, Mour- Mourinho had a lot of other Mourinho issues, and probably deserved to get canned based upon those. But he did, you know, say some stuff that would lead you to believe there was a problem with the players having uh, enough power that he wasn't able to like properly implement his ideas. Uh and this shit can happen sometimes. Um United need to get their shit together because like, yeah, let's say the players are right and they terminate the coach and gut the staff or whatever. Uh where are they then? You know? So it's interesting to see what happens with United here. I was honestly scared that they got Ralph. I thought he was gonna be allowed to like fix shit, but looks like he might not be allowed to fix shit and United found a way to fuck it up. So, that's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, I will see what happens. Um how long is this transfer window open for? Just till the end of the month. Till the end of the month. All right. So, I mean, maybe maybe United will still do some things. Um you know, when I watch United play, they're not heads and shoulders above where they were before. Their record their record is significantly better um by a pretty sizable margin than what they were doing under Ole. But I what but when I watch them play, um they look like a machine or a, like an engine that's stuck in like second or third gear and can't really like maximize their potential. So players aren't like moving off a ball at the right play, place or you can see that there's like a little bit of uncertainty in where they ought to position themselves and which pass they ought to be seeking out. Um it doesn't look like it's a total well-oiled machine quite yet. And obviously you've got your problems with the back line happening at United. Um, but if you look at what happened the day that um, Oli was canned, um, they played one more. They played one more game deploying a four-two-three-one, and then they basically immediately switched to what Ralph typically deploys, which Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, is a four-two-two-two.
1: No, that's right. Some people <laughs> would take exception to it and just be like, it's just a four-two-two-two or four-four-two. Know, yeah. Four-two. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: and there's different there's different personnel that they're integrating in that type of formation and, and optimizing for example uh we're seeing more cavani we're seeing the combination of greenwood and um ronaldo on the field but just occupying different positions we're seeing more use of jaden sancho's skill set so even though they seem to be uh, an engine stuck in third or second gear there are things that they're doing related to maximizing their players potential and playing the right personnel. That I really appreciate. So that's kind of my takeaway from watching United play.
1: Yeah, um, I guess I more or less agree. It seems like they they do have, at least everyone knows that Ralph wants to do things a certain way. And, um, you know, some of the people appear to be buying in, some of the people not so much. Uh, and, you know, even a, a transition takes time to fully integrate and, and be a difference maker. Um also there is certain lackings in personnel in certain areas that if they can get uh a, get some people in that are effective, it, it might change everything that they're doing. But yeah, I wonder how this this uh revolt amongst the players or whatever, a mutiny as people like to call it, um, how that'll shake out and, and where it all kind of ends and how much it really does actually end up impacting um, they're, they're chased for top four. Cause at the end of the day, that's, what's going to be the most important and allow them to, to move forward or not. Um, so yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see, I guess that kind of is a good time to jump into the, uh, the rest of the league and just how, how things are in general.
0: Yeah, let's do it. Um, maybe we should start with Chelsea. Um, they seem to be on like a little bit of a skid. And um, I'm interested, Ryan, do you have any take on like why that's happening or what you've observed in these games?
1: Well, I know that their squad is like really riddled with, with injuries. Um, and then also they had that Lukaku drama, Lukaku drama. So uh, I think those two things combined are at least accountable for some of the dropped, the drop points. Um, yeah, it's, it's difficult uh, to chase city all around. they, They're such a machine and have been the last few years, especially in this middle portion of the season. Yeah,
0: I I agree. Uh, It's tough to, it's probably exhausting to chase City around. Um, What I've observed with Chelsea is is a lot of the same of what you had to say. Like they've sustained injuries all over the pitch. And that's been one of the issues, namely what's happening in the central midfield um, with Conte and Kovacic. Those two being injured has really. Has really hurt the team, and then obviously like Ben Chilwell's going down, gone down, and like Reece James has picked up injuries here and there. I mean, Mason Mount was injured at the beginning of the season. Lukaku was injured. Kai Havertz was injured. Um, I could I could go on and on with the list, and it's forcing the team to have to integrate different players at core positions. So, you know, in this in Ruben Loftus Cheek, for example, occupying the center, central midfield for a number of games. Um, and I didn't think he did even a particularly poor job. but That's very difficult for teams that have specific systems to be successful with. Um, I'll also note that I said this at the beginning of the season. Integrating Lukaku as a striker. He's a different type of striker than what they had typically worked with before, um, specifically in his ability uh, to hold up the ball. And so this perpetual cycle of like integrating him, taking him out, reintegrating him, you know, only having so many players around him to get comfortable. It's, it's an arduous process and we're probably experiencing the worst of it right now, but I bet, and you said this earlier, Ryan, come Champions League, quarterfinal, et cetera, we're going to see a different Chelsea team.
1: Yeah, there are already signs of them working themselves through this funk. And if you want to, I guess, take them as signs of that in the last game that they had in the FA Cup third round, they were like very dominant. As you would anticipate, they should be against a team that's that much worse than them. Uh, Lukaku got a goal, but um, they also have been experimenting a little bit with playing four at the back instead. And it's allowed um, specifically uh, Hakam Ziyech. I got to give uh, credit to the Gavin Jewels podcast for this because I think they were they were spot on when they were talking about how Hakam Ziyech, if there's four at the back behind him, and he gets to operate starting from a wider area, he, much more like he was able to for Ajax, it opens his game up a lot. Um, I think Chelsea is in the midst of somewhat forced by injury and somewhat uh, forced by maybe not producing enough chances with, with the current formation to slightly tweak what they're doing and at least give themselves another way to play. Uh, and I, I kind of actually wonder if it has somewhat to do with getting Lukaku in, in the right spot to be successful. Um yeah, it's it's gonna be interesting to see how Chelsea makes a run because they've been successful in the cup competitions thus far, and a club like them can always make a run in a cup. So um, you know, they might be lost in the league, but in general they're gonna be they're gonna be competitive um moving through the rest of the season.
0: Oh yeah. Um I don't know how much of this is worth touching in on, but City are running away with the league and you know what is there to say like it is what it is they haven't had a horrible injury bug this season and we've seen this before
1: yeah they're such a machine um it's difficult to keep up with them and then even once they get a little bit ahead and you look at the rest of the fixtures and you go okay how many points have they dropped well will they even drop that many for the rest of the season and if they only drop like points at the same clip that they have up until this point do we have to win every single game in order it's to already or
0: it? it's already over yeah. yeah
1: like it's it's incredible how good they are and how many wins that they've put together uh in a row not just this season but it's like four seasons in a row it feels like where like second and third quarter they're just crushing it you know they're just absolutely running the table with everyone they've I think they won maybe you know twelve games in a row or something just recently, right? So when they when a team does something like that, it's it's really difficult to keep up with them, and they've just been incredible for years now. And yeah, their style of play they do it almost without a proper striker. Um, they are so difficult to get the ball off of, and they generate so many consistent goal scoring opportunities. It's uh, what Pep's created is uh, definitely like it. You know, it's it's very unique, and um, it's. It's kind of a blessing to be able to actually get to watch this type of thing happen, you know, because this is he's I, I be- really believe he's like historically good and influential in the way that he's he's doing things there.
0: Yeah, well said. I, I really like that piece about doing it without a proper striker. They've never really felt the need to go out and spend big on a on a striker. And there's been rumors. But this style that we've seen of all strikers, no strikers, and even when they don't deploy a Gabriel Jesus or a Raheem Sterling, they they appear to be at their best. Um, his Pep style of play is is absolutely legendary, and um, it's weird to kind of come up for air and understand that you're witnessing history when it's happening. But I mean, he's he's done the impossible with so many teams. Oh, well, not so many teams, two teams, but he's done them for long stretches. That it's really impressive.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely.
0: Should we move on to Liverpool?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I've been kind of disappointed with them as of late i hate it when they drop points and i feel like there's been too many games that they've tied where they have they could have won this year and also drop points from winning positions a few too many times uh this season was always going to be tough for them given that afcon was coming up so it's um it's almost a cop-out in some ways to cite it but you know salah and mane and and Keita, I guess to a lesser extent being not as influential for Liverpool but certainly Salah is the most influential player in the league right now um missing it it's almost it was almost always going to make this season a little more difficult for them to be able to go uh you know the go the entire way and end up winning i don't know if i think they can catch up city smashing it and then them having already dropped so many points doesn't really make me feel like they're capable of more or less winning out to win the league but I don't know. What do you think about their position?
0: I, I actually, um, this is, this goes back to Klopp's quote. However, many years ago he said it, if there's anybody who can do it, it's these guys. If there's anybody who can do the impossible, it's Liverpool. Um, truly like, I do think Liverpool is the type of, they're like the anti-city. Um, so I think they can pull results off there. And I think Liverpool can go on a crazy run. Um, what you brought up with Afcon, um, Afcon is like a little bit of an issue because they're losing so many players to that tournament. But um, you know, on the bright side, like it's not only the league that they're playing for; they're going to be a juggernaut in Champions League. And um, what Salah is doing is absolutely ridiculous.
1: Yeah them and uh, them and Chelsea are similar in that way, where they're dangerous in all the cup competitions still. And and yeah, Salah is absolutely ridiculous. When you look at the you know goal contributions, I think Emmanuel Dennis isn't second to him right now, and he's just so far ahead of everyone else. It's it's kind of absurd, and it's unique in that most of the time, you'll have a few guys clustered up there, especially when you do the like combined goals and assists to give you an idea of who's really been present and productive. You know whether it's like Harry Kane usually being there or uh, Bruno Fernandez in the last last season, so it's It's really an odd campaign when you look at it from that standpoint of there being this one player who just is utterly dominating and then kind of a fall off, but also you have Manchester City over here that are smashing the league up but don't have anybody in that like individual contributor shoulders category. yeah above everyone else um. From a from a goal and assist perspective, you know they you could probably argue that Ruben Diaz is is that guy, um, but you know not from the the goal contribution perspective, obviously. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's just kind of a weird season from that like, that standpoint, and Liverpool suffers extra when Salah's gone.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um... Salah's had so much time in this system with Klopp, and and for me, it's like a, a, in large part a testament to the systems and the systems operating well. It's almost like a pat on as much as it as it is a pat on the back for Salah. It's also a huge pat on the back for Klopp. And so when I see you know City putting up the points that they're putting up without like an individual contributor like Salah, and then Liverpool, you know, chasing City with Salah being such a huge contributor, I, I look at those coaches and I'm like, man, these two coaches are operating at the highest level with total command of their teams instituting their systems perfectly and really who's better between the two is best illustrated in in tournaments like the champions league
1: oh yes champions league is going to be great we'll have to do a pod about the upcoming uh european fixtures
0: oh yeah um let's jump into the teams that are contesting for fourth place and um it's quite a list so we've got Arsenal, Spurs, Hammers, United, Wolves, Brighton and Leicester, all pushing all
1: reasonable candidates for fourth place. Yeah, um, yeah that's that's the spread right there. It dips down into the table. It's it's kind of awesome exciting.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. Um what are your what are your initial reactions to those teams and their their probability of being able to capture fourth?
1: Uh I guess I would put um you know, Spurs, Arsenal, and United. Kind of in their own category. With um, West Ham is maybe the pretender to that group. You know, there's like the established ones, and then the the, the outsider that actually has shown that they punch above their weight, but um, maybe hasn't gotten all the respect yet. Uh, I I guess Spurs is the biggest front runner for me. Arsenal is is the second one because they seem to have retooled themselves and become really effective as a collective. And uh, Arteta has been able to impose himself successfully upon the the club. I think that um, Obama Yang moment is really important for them moving forward. Um, And then United, I I demote down because they're uh, in such a weird place right now in terms of their players wanting to cooperate. And um, yeah, they're so volatile though that you could totally see them putting a run together and, and, getting into fourth place uh and then the hammers are just i don't know i, I don't think they have it long term to be able to keep up with the other guys uh yeah so that's kind of how I, I see the initial spots shaken out do you do you put anybody in a different spot or uh maybe you have one of these other three teams that i didn't mention as the primary contenders uh a little higher
0: no, I have the same breakdown that you have, actually. Um, I, I put Spurs at the top of that list, um, mostly because of like the games behind. They are be, uh, from Arsenal and United and the rest of the pack. And so like if you give them those two games, they're likely sitting in fourth place. And they've just been a different team under Kante. Mm-hmm. Um, Arsenal have been really stepping it up, and it's like Arteta found... He found his identity and the team has found their identity. And so it's hard to write them off. And then like United, I only expect better things to happen once Ralph gets to, uh, and hopefully Ralph gets to do what he needs to do with that team. And if he doesn't, that will be a real shame, but that will be the determining factor in whether or not they rise or sink. Um, so I guess the short way of saying it is I see it the same way that you see it. The team that really is just interesting to me, and I keep harping on them as Wolves, um, They've just been so impressive to me this season. And, like, every week I feel like I'm talking about a different player who's, like, showing up and balling out for that team. And we've talked about, you know, uh, Rian Altnori and his ascension. And, and we've talked about, um, the you know, Raul Jimenez and the striker that they got from, uh, was it Salzburg? Wang? Yeah. um, The guy who I'm, like, really impressed with now that I'm on a kick with is Jose Sa. The guy has a ridiculous amount of clean sheets in the last ten games against really good competition, and like, he was this guy who came in from Olympiacos and you know this Portuguese goalkeeper, and it was, it's kind of like, is he going to make a difference? Is he not really going to make a difference? I think they moved on from Rui Patricio. Was oh, he? Is that who their their goalkeeper was last year?
1: Yeah, he's the Roma goalie now.
0: Yeah, and um, Jose Sa, like, it's if I had to pick the. Who's been the best goalkeeper this year? It would probably be either um, Ramsdale or Jose Sa.
1: Yeah, Jose Sa has been phenomenal. The one thing that I'll say I think limits Wolves in this um, assessment is that they don't score a ton of goals. But uh, in terms of, as you talked about, clean sheets from Jose Sa and their general defensive displays, especially against the elite teams in the league, is very, very good. you know they've lost a lot one zero and they've won a lot one zero. So no matter what, it, it, I I can't I can't remember actually the last time that they had a game that like wasn't close basically. So they're always in it, but they're always like in it to the extent where they're not gonna they're not like dominant. You know, so for me that makes it harder for them to like consistently produce as many results and absorb the like waivers and forms or the other team's best shots and still get points. Yeah, If that makes sense. It does make sense. Um, Leicester, just to touch on them, they're very volatile. Uh, I think earlier today we were talking about how like Leicester can, you know, win against any, any team, um, or they can, they can just kind of lose these, you know, give up some really bad goals or too many goals. Um, very inconsistent performances. And then yeah, Brighton is like, I don't know, you know, they're lucky to be here to be quite Frank.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's true. But somehow Graham Potter's forces way into the, to the conversation of yeah. the conversations of this pod for a year now.
1: I, you know what it's actually making me think about is like uh Graham Potter versus some Steven Gerrard action. You didn't, you omitted Villa.
0: I know. I know. Um, Villa's been so good under Girard and it's hard to it's hard to totally write them off. It's just he had to like dig he had to dig Villa out of such a large hole um that I haven't really given them given them proper consideration. Do you actually think it's at all do you think they have at least a five percent chance of occupying fourth in the table, or do you think it's sub five percent?
1: No, I don't um I don't think they have a very good chance of making the Champions League at all, but I do kind of bracket them with teams like wolves brighton and lester in yeah. terms of like their overall level in tier
0: yeah yeah so if we did power rankings today they would probably be up there if we're doing a um for selecting who's gonna finish fourth in the table they're not gonna make that list but i totally understand yeah, what exa- you're saying.
1: exactly yeah well let's uh let's talk about um your squad now everton
0: yeah, I just wanted to like touch in. They've lost eight out of their last twelve matches, and they just seem to be in like full-on crisis mode. Um, I, I don't know what's so egregious about uh, Rafa Benitez wanting to institute a style that's turned off players so intensely. Um, Luca Dean is no longer taking the field for Everton, and as much as they say it's like a Luca Dean thing, I have a hard time believing it's not like an entire team chemistry. Rafa Benitez and just bigger than one one culprit type of thing but he's one of their best players and he's not taking the field um they're only a few points out of relegation and you know Dominic calvert lewin is being reintegrated with the team he hasn't played the majority of the season um richarlison seems to be like a little bit fussy here and there which is kind of strange considering how generous everton has have been with international breaks and giving richarlison the freedom that he wants to basically um, interact with his national team, but they're just in this really bizarre position, um, where there's like disenchanted players. The team is losing a lot. Um, this transfer window that's coming up is a very difficult time to sell because there's, there's such little money or so few teams that are willing to spend with, um, the complications to revenue models and COVID. Um, So, you know, the two candidates that have emerged for landing spots for Luca Dean are Chelsea, which is like where I'm hoping he'll go and seems like a very reasonable destination. Although I question if they'll pay what he's worth with, you know, Everton's need to sell him. And then the other team that's emerged is Newcastle. And it's almost as if Everton can't sell him to Newcastle because they can't bolster Newcastle's chances of making it out of the relegation zone because they're basically putting newcastle in a position to get everton relegated so it's just a bizarre spot for everton to be in and i don't really see it getting better in the foreseeable future
1: yeah while you were talking about that i was actually just checking out like the table because i mean you had you're like relegation scare kind of thing if things go really south there basically it feels like where you're where you're at and to give some context of, like, what that would actually take, Newcastle are probably the most likely of the current bottom three to not get relegated. Is that – that's fair, right? Um, yeah. So they are eight points behind you guys uh, with having played one more game. Uh, but the teams in between are Leeds, Watford, and Burnley. So, like, Everton would have to be worse than, you know, all four of – or three of those four, four teams right yeah in order to get uh relegated which is it's it seems unlikely but it's not like nuts you know um Watford get it going down and Newcastle staying up feels like the most likely scenario but if everton don't put together something, they really are are putting themselves a little bit too close to that fire uh and given who they are and how they've never really you know been in the bottom division for so long it's a uh it's a big deal in the history of everton to go down right now um yeah i don't i don't know it doesn't feel totally totally likely though
0: yeah it's a scary prospect um and yeah, I you know we're kind of like the worst critics of the teams that we support. We, you and I have both been like that through, um, through our fan our fandom of Everton and Liverpool. Every time you talk about Liverpool potentially having a mistake, I'm like, dude, you're way over indexing that. And every time I talk about Everton having a slip, it seems that I way over index it myself. Um, what's interesting about a team like Watford is like not only do they have the Dennis system working in full effect, but their manager is like a pretty. In my opinion, he's been a pretty successful manager. He's only performed the biggest upset in Las Vegas history. Um, And when I look at their schedule, they've gotten through a lot of really difficult fixtures over their last, uh, I want to say like 10 games. So they've had Arsenal, Man United, Leicester, Chelsea, City, Brentford, West Ham, Tottenham, and then City again. Their next few games are against Newcastle, Burnley, Norwich, Brighton, Villa, West Ham, Southampton. So... Everton you know so I I do worry about where Everton's at and I know that it's unlikely that three out of those four teams would actually regress to a or uh advance to a point past Everton but it just seems like a perpetual downward cycle for Everton um what can I say Ryan I'm I'm,
1: yeah no I know it's making me depressed it's scary um yeah, it does seem it does seem unlikely, but it's not outside the realm of possibility, and that's bad enough. Uh, you'd rather like it to be not a possibility. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I wonder though, Everton, you put together a good resume there for. Sorry, not Everton, but Watford. You put together a good resume for them to be like staying up. Uh. So. So that's that's interesting. Um. I don't know if it'll be Leeds or God. It's. Whew. Going to be an interesting uh, year, and Newcastle. We talk about obviously wanting them to go down, but they are poised to try to make some difference in the transfer market here. Yeah, um, they've already gotten Kieran Tierney, and I wonder what type of players, if they're trying to think like, you know, immediate, immediate, somewhat long term. Um, yeah, what kind of player do you think would be good for Newcastle to bring in if they're looking to stay up? Uh, Luca Dean. Luka Dean, yeah yeah you like the uh, you like the difference on the outside
0: yeah, well, I think the difference on the wing wing is gonna like open up a lot up top, and they have like some pretty good strikers mm-hmm. um so I think that would be like a huge boost, but I also think like taking one of the best assets from your competition and bringing somebody in who's hungry to piss off the team that he was just benched for and um weaken your opponent is like one of the best ways to get promoted, you know part of the way you get promoted is getting. You know your closest competition relegated. So, yeah, I, I like Luca Dean as a signing, and who who the hell else knows what they have in stock? I I have a hard time believing that, you know, the the Saudis aren't going to spend a shit ton of money in this transfer window and try to keep Newcastle out of, um or um try to keep Newcastle in the in the Premier League.
1: Yeah, they they definitely are. I don't I don't know what other areas they're going to end up spending it in. I haven't seen. um you know too many rumors that are it's it's just difficult to tell what's legitimate and what's not cuz everyone can get linked to them at this point in time so it's like uh you know hard to sort through everything um but yeah it'll it'll be interesting to see what other players they acquire before the window closes here in a few weeks uh i mean what do we say about Norwich and Burnley like Norwich we talked about a little, little bit already They're shit and then Burnley like Do they have enough to stay up? We thought they were survivors, but like, are they?
0: I just think that the rest of the teams that are at the bottom of the table have events that are either happening or are going to stop happening that will allow them to get better. So like Everton, if they could get like Calvert-Loon and Richarlison back, you know, they should be in good shape, right? Like there might be a few things that happen at the center of the pitch. You couple that with maybe a transfer or two, and they're in like a lot better of a position um newcastle could go spend a shit ton of money i just don't see i don't see burnley having any uh yeah, modifier got, that's gonna help no them. outs yeah
1: yeah that make that makes a lot of sense and their like ceiling isn't high enough for you to feel like they're gonna go on like a run or whatever exactly yeah um yeah no i i agree with that i i guess that kind of brings us to the end of our epl uh roundup here it's been been a few weeks we'd love to go in some other stuff in a bit more detail but you know it is what it is and we're really really happy that you know roman's in this world now
0: dude i appreciate that yeah uh roman is the kiddo's name and ryan i appreciate how I'm much you were checking in on me it was a it was certainly a freaky time to have a, a child come that early um life was kind of like on pause and i was somewhat brought to my knees in that moment but um if any of the listeners at home or any of the folks that are uh content producers ever go through a moment like that or are expecting a child at some point, reach out and if there's any advice I can give you, I will certainly give you the best advice I possibly can or or t- tell you what the experience has been like. But Ryan, thanks for being there. And um we're excited to get rolling with DOS Champions and some of the content. We had an awesome content calendar lined up that somewhat had to take pause. But um around Wednesday or Thursday of next week, I believe we have Peter Wilt coming on the podcast or we'll be publishing that that publishing that publishing podcast with Peter Wilt. Peter Wilt builds teams more or less and has even built a league. Um, NISA is his most recent engagement. So we expect to have Peter on next week and we'll hopefully have some content around that point.
1: Yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, thanks everybody for listening and we're looking forward to more soon.
0: All right, gang, talk soon.